invite you to open your Bibles or devices to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Uh, on this Ministry Fair Sunday and our study of Mark, we're going to jump forward a, a passage, a pericope, if you want to call it that, uh, over the rich young rulers so we can talk about, I think, a great text uh, that ties in well to service in the church. And you might remember as we're going through the book of Mark in chapters 8 through 10, uh, there's a lot in here about Jesus uh, that is uh, that he, things he says that are very provocative, and uh, and uh, today is really no different as he tells us yet another counterintuitive thing about what it means to follow him, what it means even to serve in his kingdom in Mark chapter 10. So believing God has spoken, would you please stand as we listen to the words of Jesus from Mark chapter 10. Starting in verse 32, uh, as they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles." And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and tell him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, Well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand, and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink of the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We're able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know those who are considered uh, uh, rulers of the Gentiles, lorded over them, and Their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask you now to open our eyes and our ears. Help us to see, help us to hear a different way of living for you. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Some years ago, the president and CEO of a home building and real estate company called Arvita in Florida had to make some very hard decisions. Bud Miller and his company had expanded and experienced many years of good business, but like so many stories in American culture and even business culture, 
Growth was only followed by some hard times, and the hard times didn't relent. Reorganization and layoffs became necessary to keep the company going. So over several years, Bud Miller closed regional offices, reorganized departments, and had to cut his workforce in half. It wasn't a pleasant thing, as some of you have probably experienced yourself one way or another. There was, however, something really different about this reorg. (laughs) There was one more layer of fat the company had to trim in order to make itself profitable again. Bud Miller had to make one layoff from the two senior positions of the company. He was, of course, the highest paid employee of the company, but he did the unexpected. As a middle-aged 53-year-old, he laid himself off. He handed the company over to the chief operating officer and left. When asked why he did it, he said, quote, I just couldn't justify me to me. I couldn't look at the people I let go and say I applied a different standard to me. Every fiber of my being wanted to stay, but professionally speaking, this was the best decision for all involved. You see, when faced with what was really needed, Bud Miller did what needed to be done in a kind of form of (laughs) self-sacrifice. It was, if you will, downward mobility. And in the process, he said that quotable saying, I just couldn't justify me to me. You got to admit, that's not normal. That's not normal in business culture. That's not normal in our world of upward mobility. And that's because there's something in the air we breathe as Americans in an American culture that makes us just want to go up in everything. It's a given for us, whether that's going up on our career path or going up in success or even making our charts go up. They've always got to be going up, right, for everything, everybody to be happy in our numbers or money. We all experience the pull of upward mobility. And maybe that's because all of us have within us this longing for that thing that the Bible talks about called glory. But in Mark 10 today, we're going to both see and hear the upside-down ways of God's kingdom as Jesus confronts his upwardly mobile disciples with a very different way of finding glory. In fact, Jesus himself takes this way of glory, and that begs the question then for us around our text, what is Jesus' way to glory? And And in a world of upper mobility, what is our way to find glory? What does that look like in everyday life? Well, Jesus starts telling us what that looks like and that path in the very first verses of our our text. Look at verse 32 with me. It says, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. So, after years of ministering back and forth between Galilee and Judah in the north, Jesus starts heading south, south to Jerusalem. He's on the move again. And this time he's headed south to Jerusalem 
for a final end game at the end of his earthly life. And interestingly, in this process, Mark describes kind of the emotional mood of everyone who's following him and who's with him, both his disciples and this crowd. And he says the disciples were amazed uh, or excited about what Jesus was doing and going to Jerusalem, while the rest of the crowd was afraid. And you got to ask, well, what's, what's going on here? What's the difference? Well, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem for the Passover, and the city was likely swelling with hundreds of thousands of Jews who would, who would descend on Jerusalem every year for this major feast. And the crowd who was following Jesus was afraid or nervous because of the growing problems between Jesus and the Jewish authorities. Conflict was in the air. On the other hand, the disciples had another response. They were amazed, meaning they were like super excited. Jesus was finally headed to Jerusalem to do what they had been hoping he'd do all along. What is that hope? What is behind their desire? What's driving the excitement? Well, I'll tell you this. It's a false hope. A false hope. We've seen this same false hope before in Peter back in chapter 8 in his conflict with Jesus. Peter, along with the other disciples, believed that Jesus would be the king and that he would establish the kingdom of God on this earth and get rid of the stuffy, Pharisees and those dirty, rotten Romans from leading them. Their hope, if you will, for the future was a this-worldly political hope. They had excitement that Jesus would bring heaven on earth through politics. Ever heard that before? This false hope was based on what Martin Luther called a theology of glory. A theology of glory is where we project that God will be the way we want him to be, and he will change the world the way we want the world to be changed. And today is no different. We have our own versions of a theology of glory. You can find it in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. You can even find it in attempts to make, uh, of invoking God to change the culture to things that we want it to be. But you've got to understand, that's not what Jesus' hope was about. Jesus lays out a real uh, mission and hope that comes from God here. He lays out the most detailed prophetic plan for how he would go to Jerusalem, how he'd be arrested, handed over to the Jews, and then to the Gentile leaders and be tortured by them. Jesus would be treated so badly that, that he would be killed. But here's the thing, Jesus has hope in this. And don't miss that. And when Jesus says these things in the text, Jesus has hope about what's coming because he says, I'll be raised again after three days. He'll be raised again. Jesus, in other words, had this different hope and path for following God. It's what Martin Luther called the theology of the cross. Theology of the cross is that God would do what seems foolish to men to accomplish the work of what's really needed for mankind, our salvation. It would take the foolishness of God through the path of the cross to rescue us and to make us right before God made the world right. 
Now, here's what's intriguing about this. Jesus has already told his disciples this would happen two other times, back in chapters 8 and chapters 9. This is the third time, then, in three chapters, that he's laid out his clear purpose and plan to go to Jerusalem. He lays out a clear plan that he's going to die and be resurrected. But here's what's glorious about Jesus keeping this prediction going, this prophecy going about his own life and this hope of his resurrection. Jesus' death wasn't an accident. It wasn't a setback. It was the very reason that he came into this world as the Son of God. In fact, Jesus is actually fulfilling the prophetic promises of the Old Testament. You read it earlier in our call to worship in Isaiah 41, as well as Isaiah 53, which has elements of that language in our text. It predicted that Christ would come and be both a great king, conquering, but he'd do it in the most unexpected way as a suffering servant giving his life for his people. You see, Jesus' suffering and death was always the plan. Now, how does that apply to us and to our hope today? Well, first, we don't go looking for suffering ourselves, (laughs) but the way of Jesus is suffering. And so anyone who follows Jesus will follow him into suffering of some form. Jesus said as much in Mark chapter 8 when he says, Anyone who would come after me must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. 2 Timothy 3.12 says that everyone who lives a godly life will be persecuted. Doesn't that get you excited? Jesus is laying out his downwardly mobile uh, way of life and he calls us to that very same life. That's why Paul talks about in his, throughout his letters multiple times that we're called to share in the suffering of Christ. But let me be clear. This downward mobility is not without hope. You've heard that what goes, down, what goes up must come down, right? We've heard that, right? Like the balloon yesterday, right? <laughs> Well, what goes down with Christ must come up. Because of Jesus' resurrection, following Christ is always followed by exaltation. That's the rhythm of the Christian life. Humiliation and exaltation. Following Jesus in that road. With death comes resurrection. Furthermore, Jesus and the rest of the New Testament also predict that Jesus will come back one day in a second coming. Sometimes we're a little bit like the disciples and we're just not listening to Jesus when he's saying, I'm going to die and be resurrected. When Jesus says, I'm coming back, we're just not listening. We're focused on the things of this world. And so what I exhort you to do is don't be caught up in the theology of glory in this world that comes with our functional health, wealth, and prosperity gospels that we all carry around within us. Instead, get caught up in the Christ's promise to return and bring a new heavens and a new earth where we'll dwell with him for eternity and see him face to face. Even as you work hard in this world, even to do good, and as we as a church impact the community with the gospel and engage and love our neighbors, as we've already talked about today, so you must do it 
by beginning with the end in mind. Labor like we're going to heaven, not like this is all there is in this life. You would think that after three times, that would be the charm for the disciples getting the bigger story of salvation. But when Jesus keeps talking about Jerusalem, something gets triggered in his disciples, particularly James and John, so that they respond right after he says this with verse 35. Look at this. It says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant to us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. (sighs) Three times he's told them. And no sooner does Jesus lay out this path of suffering and resurrection Then James and John, in what would be a major tone-deaf moment, come with political maneuvering to get their place where they can be a part of Jesus' worldly kingdom. Now, how is it political maneuvering? Some of you may be asking. Do you realize this is the first time in Mark that James and John are not mentioned with Peter? who are the three closest disciples to Jesus. At this point, they're kind of nudging old Peter out in a little bit of nepotism, trying to get the end game with the power. Even worse, if you read Matthew's version of this, their mother gets involved. Oh, my goodness, how embarrassing, but that's what happens too in the process. No offense, Mom. (laughs) Of course, James and John reveal what they want, In verse 37, they want glory. They want glory through power and significance with Jesus. They envision themselves as the in the two most important places that you would you would be put in a in a in in an ancient kingdom at the right and the left of a king. And what you gotta understand is this: they're hoping with a theology of glory not the theology of the cross. They will hitch their lives up to Jesus and enjoy the prestige. Uh, Never mind they're walking over other people in the process. Now let me ask an important question at this point. What's behind this impulse of the upwardly mobile theology of glory? Well, I'll tell you this, the search for power that squishes others is nothing less than a form of idolatry. Whether it's driven by a hope for financial security, driven by a hope for power, driven by a hope for influence or popularity, or whether it's driven by a desire to control the outcome of a situation These things are usually driven by idols that reside in our hearts. And those idols tell us that if we just push it a little harder, we'll get what we want. Now, let me be clear. Power is a good thing, and it's a gift from God, actually. But the issue with power and with us is not that we have it. It's how we use it. 
Something I've learned the hard way and that I teach my students at the seminary is that uh, gifted people and gifted leaders have a double burden. Not only must you not use your power for evil purposes, but you also have to know when to turn your giftedness off for a greater good. For example, teachers like me, preachers like me, are notorious for over-teaching and over-preaching. Not that you guys have ever experienced with that with me before. Leaders can over-lead. Organizers can over-organize. People who help can overdo it and not empower others. When we overdo it with our giftedness, you can just about bet an idol's driving it, not Jesus in the Spirit. Jesus responds to this idolatrous upward impulse of James and John with a great and patient word and really a caution on what glory actually looks like in the kingdom of God. He says, with the greatest of affection, you have no idea what you're asking for. You don't know what you're saying. And Jesus even goes on to refuse to guarantee any position of influence in the kingdom because that calls between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and the, and the position ordained by God. But then he cautions us with this cryptic thing he says. Can you drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? You're like, what, what is he talking about? Well, when Jesus talks about the cup, it's a reference to the Old Testament, and Jesus is talking about coming under the wrath of God, which was usually reserved for the wicked. And when he talks about baptism, he's talking about the overwhelming judgment of God that's sort of like Noah's flood. Jesus is saying that he will experience the overwhelming judgment of God for his people and for their wickedness, he's pointing to the cross. Now, James and John think he's talking about a cup of blessing, you know, like you give a cup somebody, here, you have something to drink, that kind of blessing. And so, once again, in a breathtaking lack of self-awareness, the two disciples say, yeah, we can do that, we're able, no sweat, we got that. And Jesus tells them, I'm sure with a little bit of a sigh, he tells them that they will indeed experience it. They will experience the cup in baptism, but not the way they expect. Indeed, sure enough in history, the Apostle James would go on to be the first apostle martyred by Herod Agrippa in 44 AD. And the Apostle John would go on to be imprisoned at the end of his life by persecutions of Domitian, uh, the emperor Domitian on the island of Patmos around 100 AD. They both would suffer for following Jesus. So what's this got to do with us? And what does it do with how we live in this upwardly mobile context? Well, here's what I'd tell you. Adjust your expectations. Adjust your expectations about what it means to follow Jesus and especially if you lead in Jesus' name in any meaningful way. James and John are trying to maneuver their way into power. 
And it causes all kinds of a ruckus, a scrum, if you will, in verse 41 of our text. The rest of the disciples, if you look at that verse, hear what's going on, and probably led by the incensed Peter who'd just been nudged out, uh, they get into it and they freak out with anger. And you can hear them in the scrum saying things like, who do these guys think they are? Or, what about us, Jesus? Or, what about me, Jesus? Think of all that I did for you. Or, aren't you on my side? I'm the one who should actually be leading. Not that guy. Remember what he did? Now, here we have a, we got a little moment, all right? A moment where we get an idea of why churches blow up and people scatter. Recent years of scandals in the church have been a massive disappointment to all of us. And no church should think they are above it, including us. Sin is the general reason churches struggle, but the spark for the fire is usually worldly leadership. Men have no idea how to handle spiritual power. And as your pastor, I, I'm sobered reading verse 41 because it's crystal clear here that the disciples forgot the one basic thing about any kind of leadership in God's kingdom is this. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. Nobody does. You see, that's what the theology of glory does. The theology of glory creates a self-righteousness that makes leaders think God is on their side and therefore they have a right to the kingdom on their own merits. They come to the church by works, not by faith. Jesus puts a stop to all this with an upside-down mic drop. In verse 42, Jesus says this, amazing thing that is just extraordinary. Look at that with me, verse 42. Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great, great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus firmly corrects his disciples and their power grab by telling them what leadership is really about in the kingdom of God. And he contrasts these two ways, the way of God and the way of the world in leadership. And what's the way of the world in leadership? Well, he brings up the image of the closest thing they could see to absolute power in the world at that time, the Roman Empire, and the way the emperors and the governors worked. He says that Gentile rulers lord it over or exercise authority. The Greek here could be translated that the leaders oppress in exploitation and flaunt their authority. And after all this, Jesus comes back with the strongest contrast imaginable. The Greek actually says, not so among you. Not so. You're supposed to be really different from the world and how you lead people. Now, what does that difference look like? Whoever is great should be a servant. Whoever is first should be the slave of all. And, of course, this is a call to humility. 
which uh, should be no surprise given the last few chapters, and even especially what Jim preached last week, where Jesus compares those who follow him like children. Yes, even leaders should be like children in approaching the Lord. Jesus also said in a prior chapter, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And what Jesus is getting at here is servant leadership. Or I like my friend uh, uh, John Cinema says this way, maybe the better translation is lead, lead servant. That the accent's on servant, and you just happen to be leading in that role. This is way different than the upwardly mobile way of our world. In every social setting, we see ourselves somewhere on the ladder, even in church. <laughs> we see ourselves somewhere on the ladder. There are people above us, and people below us. And the impulse of the world is to go up the ladder, even if you run over others. Jesus, on the other hand, is saying this wildly different thing, that we're to go down the ladder. Down the ladder. Not only going down, but if you aim to be a leader in God's kingdom and church, you go to the very bottom of the ladder. Did you see what he says? The slave of only a few people? Nope. The slave of most? Uh-uh. The slave of all. The slave of all. This is sacrificial service. That's what Jesus is talking about. And at this point, some of us, when we're thinking of how we lead, be it in our families or in the church or any other place, we think, man, this whole idea of going down to the bottom and being a slave of all just feels like really something I am not familiar with. What happens if I go down to the bottom? Well, here's the gospel. Jesus is waiting for you right there because he's the one who went all the way to the bottom. He's the one who became the slave of all going all the way to the cross for you and for me. Now, of course, there are a couple of questions that come out of this point. Is it okay to lead or to want to lead, to go up the ladder in the business world or the church or other social settings? Maybe even if you're a teenager here today, like school, is it okay to want to go up the ladder? Well, the short answer is it depends. What's your purpose? To feed the idol or to see God's glory? To get what you want or to love along the way? Purpose and ends matter in the way of Jesus. We do things as Christians, even in leadership, with love for others' good and for God's glory. That's why the best leaders are the ones who say, let's go this way. Even if you're the top dog in your organization, let's go this way, and then you'd come right back around and serve them, empowering them to do what they need to do and giving them the tools to carry out the vision. Now, another question comes up when we talk about this leadership thing, and this, especially in this age of abuses of power. Does this mean that we let people walk all over us? Well, the short answer I would give you is no and yes. 
We have a right to preserve our dignity, even with leaders, and I might add good servant leaders will defend the weak and the hurting by standing in an abuser's way. But here's the thing, <laughs> and this is coming from 25 years of ministry and even years of, of uh, volunteer ministry before that. If you serve Jesus or if you lead in Jesus' name and you and you learn what it means to go down the ladder, even all the way to the bottom, you will get hurt and sometimes abused. Jesus did. Let me put it this way. Sacrificial service and leadership in Jesus' name as a parent, a boss, a church leader, you name it, will come with holy scars. And at those moments... When you're feeling like, what do I have? If I go to the bottom of the ladder, here's what I tell you you have. You have Christ. You have him right there with you. And there's something acute about going to the bottom after you've been hurt, even as a leader. And all you have is Jesus right there with you. And you realize this is enough. This is enough. So, Jesus calls us to go low, to serve as a life in his kingdom. But why would you do this? I mean, what, what would motivate us to choose this downward mobility when the whole impulse of our culture is go up, go up, go up? Well, the very reason we go down comes up in verse 45 which says this, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you hear that? As the Son of God, Jesus himself did not come to say, hey, you all people dance around me, all right? He didn't do that. He said, I, I come to serve. And what do you know? His life was that way. He was serving people constantly, attending to people's real needs and he served all the way to the cross. Jesus is focusing on the cross as the reason to serve. Now, let me unpack that in two applications. First, he's saying that we are freed by his death when we receive him by faith and take in that ransom he paid for us. That freedom purchases our redemption so that we are no longer slaves to the upward mobility and flow of our world. We can choose to step out or do it a different and holy way. Indeed, you can never go down in real humility of service and sacrifice until you have experienced Christ's cleansing of sin and freedom in your soul because the idols are strong you got to have Jesus conquer them through that ransom. Second, Christ's death is also the ultimate model of how we are called to lead with authority. Yes, we do lead with authority in places. And if you want to see what real life-giving and transforming leadership looks like, watch Jesus go to the cross and rescue us from sin. Of course, we can never rescue people from their sin, but this is a model for us that we can learn how to go down in service to others. This is Jesus saying, follow me by going down. 
There are two more quick applications I would give to you, South Charlotte Prez, around this. And this is really applicable for us as a church. First, this summer, we're going to be opening up nominations for our next leadership class of elders and deacons. So start praying for our next generation of leaders and pray particularly for deacon candidates. We really need deacon candidates. Second, this is Ministry Fair Sunday. We want to fill our teams with new servants. Now, some of you here are doing a lot. You may even need to dial it back and do less. Others of you will need to step up and serve. Remember, we affirm that we try to do the one, the one, and the one in terms of our responsibilities at church here. Find one context where you can grow and be fed in the gospel. Find one context where you can actually serve and engage. And then find one context, which may overlap with the others, where you're reaching out to lost people in meaningful ways. That's the one, the one, the one for us. Now let me say this in conclusion. I'm asking a question. What would be a simple way to describe this way of service that Jesus is talking about? What real service for the kingdom looks like? Well, I get this definition from a friend of mine, Tim Laniac, and he says this, real service is you've got to be willing to do anything. Willing to do anything for Jesus and his purposes. That's the definition of Christ's work for us going all the way to the cross. He was willing to, to do anything so that you and I could have eternal life. And in 1964, a group of Gurkha soldiers were asked by the British if they would jump from transport planes into a combat area in Indonesia with a conflict that was going on at that time. These Gurkha soldiers had not trained as paratroopers and were given the right to say no if they wanted to. The Gurkhan soldiers were known for their extraordinary bravery, and they were willing to do it. But the next day, the Gurkha leader came out and said, we'll only do this under certain conditions. We'll only jump out of the plane under certain conditions. And the British commander who was leading said, well, what are your conditions? The leader said, we'll jump out only on land that is marshy and doesn't have rocks. And the British officer said, it's going to be almost sure we're jumping into jungle, so it'll be probably a similar experience. Then he said, well, is there anything else? And the Gurkha leader said, yeah, we want the plane to go very, very slow and to go well below 100 feet when we drop out of the plane. And the British commander said, well, actually, when we drop paratroopers, we slow everything down, but we can't do 100 feet because the parachutes wouldn't have time to deploy. And the Gurkha leader said, well, wait a minute, parachutes? You mean we can use parachutes? You didn't say anything about that. They were willing to jump out of a plane without parachutes. The church needs more servants who are willing to do anything. The church needs more servants who are willing to jump out of a plane without parachutes for Jesus' kingdom. But should that be any surprise for us? That's exactly what Jesus did when he went to the cross. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we all come to you right now and thank you that you are the God who sent your son in this world to serve us. We know we don't deserve it, but yet you offer it as a free gift. And we pray today that as we think about what it means to follow you, the servant Lord, and what it means for us to even serve by going down the ladder rather than up, we ask you to give us wisdom, give us eyes to see, Lord, this kind of life that you call us to that is really scary and seems unnatural, but is really full of life because you're right there at the bottom of the ladder waiting for us. So, Lord Jesus, meet us today and help us to ask the question, how can we serve? How can we jump out of the, of the airplane without parachutes for you? In Christ's name, amen.